Thank you for joining us for this particular session. We simply want to sit down and have a Q&A panel. Thank you to those who submitted questions. We have those. Um, I can't guarantee that we'll get through all of them. There were a number of questions submitted, so um, but we're going to go ahead and work through these uh, questions here. But before we do, let me just remind you briefly of who's on the panel. Um, Rod Martin, do you would you like to join us on the panel? You could. All right, there you go. There you go, man. Come on. Imagine that. Okay, so um, starting all the way across from me, um, on the far right is Tom Askell, senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church and president of Founders Ministries, and then. Dr. Tom Nettles, who uh, is most recently professor of historical theology and church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he's basically taught church history and historical theology probably to all, all the men that are pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention that are 60 or under or something like that. You've been doing it so long, um, including, including Pastor Tom, just to your right there, and, uh, and myself. So very glad to have you with us. Rod Martin, I believe Tom called a tech guru and futurist and... Rod Martin organization, just big words that I can't uh, even all remember, but blah, 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 that. Okay. Fred, uh, Fred Malone is pastor at First Baptist Clinton in Louisiana, and Tom Hicks here to my right is a senior pastor of First Baptist Clinton there in Louisiana as well. I'm associate pastor at Grace Baptist Church there with Tom and vice president of Founders Ministries. Okay. So a uh, number of questions here. Let's start with this one, and I'm just going to pass this out. Any of you can jump on these questions as you wish. We're doing a conference on the gospel and justice. There has been much talk about social justice. Some have said founders has shifted from their focus, which was the recovery of the gospel and reformation of churches to something else. Is that the case? Why or why not? Well, no, it's not the case. The, uh, the original intent of Founders Ministries was to give a clear definition of uh, the gospel as it is set forth in our historic confessions of faith. The main uh, distinctions that existed within Baptist life at the time were basically with a, a sort of a, a, a quasi-evangelical Arminianism that uh, we thought had had the effect of uh, creating an undisciplined church membership, a great uh, ignorance about what doctrine was, uh, inconsistency in the way these doctrines were stated, and therefore a kind of a stultified uh, sanctification among the memberships. And we were uh, convinced that a recovery of the doctrines of grace would do much to remedy that, that a conscientious commitment to this kind of uh, coherent biblical understanding that is set forth in the confessions would have a very positive effect on uh, both pastors and then would aid their, their ministry. That's not the only challenge, though, historically that can come to the gospel. There are, there are other challenges that tend to minimize aspects of, of salvation, divine sovereignty, substitutionary atonement, the deity of Christ, all of these things that are essential for a positive understanding of what the Bible reveals about our uh, condition of lostness and how it is that God saves sinners. Uh, social justice, just as a concept of real justice, is something that everyone should be concerned about because if we're really talking about uh, justice, that is 
related in some real linear fashion to biblical justice, then, then it's something that is right in the, in the heart of who we are as Christians. If social justice is just nomenclature that actually has picked up on an, an alien uh, philosophy and therefore produces doctrines that are not consistent with our confessional heritage, then it is just as much a threat to our understanding of how we preach the gospel and what salvation is and how people are, are sanctified and what repentance is and what faith is and what the unity of the race is and, and all of these things. It just comes at it from a different way. It, it, is, it is more subtle. Uh, but it's not just our, our argument against this is not just sort of a philosophical extension of ideas. We say, well, if you believe this and then we connect the dots logically, here's what's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's really a, a palpable observation as to what has happened uh, when you begin to minimize the, the, the nature of eternity and the nature of infinite sin against God and his uh, just um, dilemma with, uh, or his, his just controversy with us and the way he has made a way of salvation, if we minimize that by, by putting justice simply at the human level, if we talk about it only from a horizontal standpoint and, and gradually di uh, diminish and eventually dismiss the vertical standpoint, then it's just as much a threat to the gospel as other uh, sort of alien theological systems are. So we've had some pretty rough discussions about this within the, uh, the committee, very frank discussions about it, but I think our consensus is that that this is the kind of, of theory that uh, actually undermines the biblically revealed gospel. It substitutes something else from it. It redefines man. It redefines repentance. It redefines original sin. It redefines salvation. It redefines reconciliation. Uh, and so it uh, is a uh, not only theoretically can harm, but historically has uh, actually uh, e eviscerated uh, the, the doctrine of salvation from different denominations who've embraced it. You know, what Tom's... Yeah, I would agree with that. This has been a very serious conversation among our Founders Board over the last 18 months or so, or maybe going back even further than that in trying to uh, determine, is this what God would have us do? And we have received the accusations that the question raises, you know, would, do you feel like you've departed from your original purpose? What Tom just said is exactly right. We do not think so. We just think that this is a, a new front on which we are called to fight. Uh, what Tom Hicks said this morning about the nature of the gospel in distinction from the law well, today we're being told these things are gospel issues and you don't believe the gospel if you don't imbibe these particular agendas that are associated with social justice. Let me give you one example. Uh, Anthony Bradley, who is a PhD from Westminster Seminary, teaches at King's College, has said this, and he said this is going to be hard for you to hear, but evangelicalism has never had the gospel. And the reason he says that is because evangelicalism, he thinks, has always been soft on these issues of social justice, particularly in his argument on issues of race relations. And so today you, you hear people telling uh, folks that, that men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield didn't have the gospel because they, they had views of slavery that today people disagree with and want to take the task with about, and, and fine, do that. But they're making these types of ethical uh, elements ingredients of the gospel well, 
if that continues on, then we're going to lose the gospel again in ways that, that we did earlier in the last century. And then local churches. I, everywhere I have gone over the last three months when I've been out speaking, not just about these things, but, but most of those occasions about these things, I've had people come up to me and tell me stories, including here this week, about their churches and what's going on in their churches with their pastors or people in their churches that are imbibing this. There's a church that's dear to me in my state that was ripped apart over these issues. And so reformation of local churches, absolutely. Recovery, preservation of the gospel, absolutely. Founders has not shifted our original purpose at all. We've just realized that there have been new fronts that have opened up where if we don't take a stand and fight on those fronts, I think we would be derelict in our duty. Add something. Um, these guys brought me up today about a year or two ago on what was happening. And uh, particularly in this last year, I've heard statements like Tom is speaking of that if you don't uh, go along with this and believe in the responsibilities and the actions that are pres uh, presented, then you don't believe the gospel. And the problem with that is, if I may bring an analogy, the federal vision um, under the new perspective on Paul uh, several years ago or a number of years ago began to enter into churches, um, particularly in the South and, and uh, West. And the issue there was that the new perspective on Paul is that you're not justified by faith alone at one point in history when you are saved when you believe. You enter into justification that may be lost and that you're not finally justified until the judgment seat of Christ where you have believed in the truths about Christ plus you have a testimony of what they would call unmerited works to add to your faith to be finally justified. In other words, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, is, uh, is, is taken away. And when I started reading the things about the gospel, uh, that, this is, that we have not believed the gospel, that now the gospel is that you must believe in Jesus plus social justice plus their interpretation of what actions must be taken for social justice, it immediately brought to my mind the federal vision uh, formula that you're not justified by faith alone. So not only is scripture alone uh, being undermined by this movement and its hermeneutics, but also justification by faith alone when they begin to accuse a person not being a Christian unless they fit certain things. That's pretty close to the gospel. We've been talking about um, worldly philosophies. Scripture warns us not to be taken captive by these worldly philosophies. How would you articulate the worldly philosophies that we are concerned about? How would we help people to really make it concrete? This is what's going on. Let me throw in one thing there. Um, intersectionality is uniquely pernicious. It is truly abysmal, and it's not necessarily obvious why, because it's just so easy to lampoon. I mean, I've seen a lot of internet memes about, you know, flowcharts of, you know, do you 
uh, get to win in such and such argument. Oh, wait, well, uh, only if you're this minority and this minority, but oh, wait, this one trumps it. And, you know, it, it lends itself to laughter, but it's not a laughing matter because at its core, what we're saying is that if you are of a particular group, then in effect, you really don't share an original sin. And you get to sit in judgment over other groups. And they need to seek your forgiveness because you're that group. And you, as a group, get to judge whether or not they have repented enough. But that other group is a group of sinners. They are every bit as much in need of grace as you. So how can they be judges if God alone is judge and if all of us are needy to the point of death? So we're not just alienating everyone from one another. We're also setting up classes of people who are exempt from the need for grace. And the pretense that, oh, well, you're, you're hyperbolizing. No, you're really not. How is this different from the slave-master relationship of yesteryear, which was, by the way, thoroughly wicked, and, and it would be interesting to talk sometime about you know ideas pertaining to why, for instance, I, I really do believe that by operation of the New Covenant, the, uh, the, anything having to do with slavery was abolished on the cross. I really do believe that. It took a while for Christians to catch up with that idea, just as it took a while for the Jews to figure out that polygamy was a bad idea. It doesn't mean that it was ever God's order. Likewise here, you have an order being substituted in the name of being kind to others that in fact sets themselves up for failure of an eternal significance. Huh. They are much greater losers than the so-called oppressors in this conception because they are deceived into believing that they don't need what Jesus has for them on a really fundamental level. Anybody else on articulating the philosophy? I'll jump in and say I think um, it seems to me it's a philosophy found in Romans 1 when the Apostle Paul talks about they turned from worshiping the creator to worship the creature. They did not stop at, at atheism, and they didn't even stop at secularism. When you're talking about secularism as some kind of society in which there is no, there is no ultimate authority, it really is an exaltation of man. So, so man is now God, and therefore man begins to define things that God normally defines. It, man, man now has a law, so there's a, there's a human standard rather than a divine standard. And, and human desire then can, can flow kind of wherever human desire wants to flow. And it, it's, human desire is not to be regulated uh, by God's law either. And Peter Jones is someone I've looked to who I think has done a great job of talking about oneism, oneism and twoism. And in one sense, oneism, twoism is like really hard to explain. And then in the other sense, it's actually really easy. So the, the Christian worldview, he says, is twoist. There's a creator and there's the created. And there's distinction. There's two. Uh, well, this worldview that we're talking about is, is one. There is no creator. All is one. All is God. So think pantheism. 
I really think a lot of that is is underneath what we're seeing bubble up in society. Going back to critical theory, uh, critical theory was developed by people that were not looking to an objective standard in order to do justice. They're, they weren't doing that. Uh, they would say, well, we can see some kind of injustice going on in society because we're people, and we can just tell that these people have had it harder than these people. Well, how do you fix that? If you're not looking to an objective standard, you just put your finger on the scale a little bit. Just put your finger on the scale and try to even things out. Try to get at some vague notion of equality across all spectrums rather than saying, okay, this, this is injustice because God's law says so. So I think a, a humanistic, um, man-centered kind of faith even is, is growing around us. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, the way I have come to think of this is almost like a new Gnosticism, which is that there's this inner spark, this inner desire that's in every person. And the world outside of me, including my body, uh, including any authority structures around me that are keeping this inner desire from manifesting itself as I would like it to be, those, those barriers need to be burst. You have to break through all, all the authority of of God's world itself, uh, the authority structures that God has uh, placed in this world in order to, to realize that inner light's desire. And if you think of the American hero, uh, that is the American hero now. It's the one who's, who's been able to realize what, it, what is in his heart against all odds, no matter what's in his heart. Um, how these ideas work their way into uh, SBC, thinking or kind of reformed evangelical thinking. And I know it's, it's debatable about how far these things have made their way into uh, these worlds, but how do you think that some even uh, good people have, have started to drift and line up with some of these ideas? You know, that's really easy. Most of these people mean completely well. And I know a lot of the guys we're talking about, you know, and they're not bad guys and they're not communists. I mean, they totally aren't. And I don't want you to get the idea that they are. There are some, but most of these guys, they want to be kind to people to whom people have not previously been as kind as they should have been. And they hear rhetoric that is spoken by various influencers, some of them in the church, many of them out. They are trying, I think, many of them to bridge a gap. They know that a lot of the people that they wish to bridge a gap to speak in, let's just use the word, Democrat categories. So they're trying to reach out, and they, what did the Lord say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lennon wrote a lot about the utility of people who know just a little about the full agenda. But let me assure you, this is like radiation. A little bit won't kill you. In fact, a little bit might do you some good. But if you stick with it, it will surely kill you dead as can be. This is a full system, and flirting around the edges of it is not going to help you bring reconciliation. Reconciliation is what I did earlier today. Hi, I'm Rod. Let's have dinner. It's one-on-one. -on -one. It's you shall know they are Christians by their love for one another. 
we have to do that. All of this critical theory is, is good for nothing when it comes to actually creating human relationships and pointing people to relationships with God the Father. I think another thing that has happened, or at least been exposed through uh, what's taken place the last few years, is that the young, restless reform movement has been far younger and more restless and less reformed than any of us imagined. And um, yeah. I mean, that's true. It's sad. Um, you know, I've hoped the best and tried to defend some of the things that have happened along the way with that movement. But this has pretty well pulled the veneer off of that. I'm not accusing everyone of that, but it is quite evident that many of those who jumped on board because it was chic to be a Calvinist uh, don't have the same kind of robust commitments to the confessional understanding of the faith that we've tried to labor for in Founders Ministries. And so that makes a person, quite honestly, easier prey to these types of ideas and ideologies when they come dressed the way that they've come. I'd like to just add a couple of things. One is, from the way I think, that it's primarily about hermeneutics. How do you approach the Bible? How do you determine what is the gospel? How do you determine from the scripture uh, what is the mission of the church? What is the responsibility of every man? And so forth. And I, um, with hopefully kindness, I do not believe a lot of men come out of seminary with a sound hermeneutic that's able to evaluate the ideas they hear and refute them biblically um, and, and then establish, um, not just refute ideas, but to establish a clear mission of the what is the gospel and what is the church and what's the mission of the church so that they can see through these things. And uh, secondly, um, sound theology of having a whole counsel of God theology from the scripture uh, in which they understand God's one mind and the one sense of scripture and, and, and are able to interpret uh, the ideas they hear from uh, a sound theology. And, and are able to recognize these new ideas, which are old ideas, I should say, uh, for what they are. A corruption of the gospel, a redirection of the mission of the church, false guilt upon Christian minds, uh, false doctrines, and false solutions. And what we need to do is proclaim the gospel of Christ hold integrity with our confession of faith, including those confessional statements that we sign wherever we are, and, and teach in accordance with the scriptures. So hermeneutics and sound theology, I believe that's where um, these things open, get, are able to enter into the door, and then uh, as you walk through the door, uh, if you don't have a sound theology, you may be easily taken in by these other things. I'd point to two things about how, how we kind of got here. One is the issue of God's law. I think that we have neglected the issue of God's law. 
there's been lots of talk. This is kind of evidenced in the number of books that were gospel something. There was gospel-centered, gospel something, and all of that language was great. But when you're talking about the gospel, uh, as we heard from Tom Hicks earlier, we need to understand the, the gospel and the law. And if you neglect the law of God, something's going to take the place. There, there's going to be shoulds. People are going to be shoulding you all the time. I tell the story often, getting to know Tom years back, and in some conversation he said, you know, look, people are going to be shoulding you and shoulding you and oughting you all the time. Anytime somebody ought you or should you, there needs to be biblical law underneath. There needs to be Bible. That was so relieving because I, I realized how many times in a day, you know, we all know what it's like to be shooted by somebody. And, um, and even if it's a, even if it's a subtle thing, you know, it's like, well, is there a standard under there somewhere? It's just something you made up. And I, I think we neglected the law of God. Um, the second is I really do think as, as kind of probably one of those who would, I'm probably somewhere in the category of the young restless and reformed age group. Um, I, I do think there was a, there was a good Kuyperian impulse right? A go, all of Christ for all of life, kind of evidenced by old Chris Tomlin's God of this city. You're the God of this city. I mean, it was played through every church in America. And, and I, think, I think the Young Restless Reform went out trying to be Kuyperian. They left their Bibles at home and they got smacked down by the world. I really think that's what happened. I think they went out and said, we're going to change the world for Christ. And they got changed. They just became worldly. Um, and, and not just in like ranked sinful ways, but in ideas. You weren't grounded deep enough in the word of God and understanding that we, 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 are, we are separate from the world, distinct from the world, going to the world. And it's going to be our, our, our evangelistic apologetic strategy needs to be what we see in the book of Acts. It's three yards in a cloud of dust kind of evangelism. It's here. The gospel's progressing, but we're getting stoned and kicked out of cities. And the, but the ideology now is like, well, how are we going to win them if, they, if we're not friendly, if they don't think we're friendly and nice? Well, I mean, say that to the Apostle Paul when he was in Thessalonica, you know. So I think there's, there's, a, there's, there's problems with how we're thinking about the church and the world um, and, then, and then our prophetic witness in the world that has resulted in what we're facing. And there's a great irony in that because these same young men are very accusatory of their elders having politicized the church, which is exactly what they're doing. And, you know, you can always find things to criticize in anybody. So I'm not going to just blanket say, oh, the older generation was great because they're all older than me, so they're terrible, right? So, you know, <laughs> I'll just smack them too. What the heck? Uh, but no. Why were they political? They were political more than any other reason because we're murdering babies by the millions. That's why. Because we're smacking God out of every public space. That's why. Because religious liberty is now demonized. That's why. They weren't in love with the Republican Party. I've been a Republican all my life. Anybody who's done that hates the Republican Party. Let's be real. Yuck. That's not, we're not in love with the Republican Party. No. We are in love with the idea that God has given us the freedom to govern ourselves, but you actually have to go do the governing if you're not going to be governed by the people who hate Christ. So I'm grateful that these guys actually realize they need to operate in the world and they're not just living on a mountain somewhere waiting for the rapture. That's good, but... If you're going to play a particular game, you need to know the rules of that game. Social justice has a lot of history. 
and they didn't bother to learn it, most of them. So, so I'm glad they're engaged, but they, they need to learn what fire they're playing with. Dr. Nettles, I'm going to send this next question to you. It says, in times like these, what are some key doctrinal truths to sure up on? Everything that's in the Bible. Amen. <laughs> I mean, this is, the, uh, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? It's the distinction between revealed truth, that is, all of it is to be believed, and those things that are plausible arguments that are developed that may seem to make sense within a, a stream of, of logical extension, but actually tell us nothing about divine revelation. They don't tell us who God is and that he's a triune God. They don't tell us about the fall and that we all are fallen and there is no difference. They don't tell us about justification by faith, by imputed righteousness. Uh, they don't uh, tell us about the, the reality and the justice of eternal destinies of heaven and hell and how that is just in both cases. Uh, worldly philosophies don't tell us uh, any of that. And so if we're going to recognize the falsehood of a worldly philosophy, if we're going to understand that it's built upon a fallacious uh, foundation, then we have to have ourselves thoroughly engaged with biblical theology, what the Bible says. We have to be thoroughly committed to the inspiration of Scripture and that it's telling us things we cannot learn in any other way. It's telling us about God and giving us uh, information and clear information and demonstration and illustration of all of his uh, attributes and what it means to worship and how we celebrate the beauty of God and, and the protection of God and the wonder of God. And you don't learn that in any place except in God's holy book. You just read through the Psalms all tonight and just see what kind of praise the knowledge of God evokes. Is there any worldly philosophy that presents you with that kind of view of God and will, will cause you to worship him and bow before him and confess that you are a worm and that you are unworthy of his attention and that his mercy and grace is so overwhelming that you cannot believe that someone who is a sinner would actually receive it? What plausible worldly philosophy is going to tell you that? And is going to give you a foundation for the... Uh, emancipation of the, the, the reality of the image of God that is in you that wants to, to know him and that can uh, be expanded virtually infinitely because that's what will happen in, uh, in when we're in, we're in heaven. We will we'll never cease growing in our joy at being found more and more in the likeness of God. What worldly philosophy is going to put that as the highest good of the human person? No place will you find that. If, if we don't uh, love the Bible and love divine revelation and love salvation by grace and try to extend our understanding of it every day, then we're just going to be sucked in by things that seem plausible uh, and that seem to, to make us uh, feel relevant uh, in, in the world. And we lose the concept that real relevance is what happens when we stand before God after it's appointed as a man once to die and after that the judgment. Then what will we think is relevant? Am I forgiven of my sins? Do I know God? Or am I going to hear, depart from me, ye curse it into everlasting fire? That is real relevance. Amen. And nothing else tells you about that except Scripture. So every doctrine of Scripture built upon divine revelation is that which will prepare us to uh, examine other things that vie for our attention, that vie for our affection. And if it does not have the, the warrant of thus saith the Lord, if it does not lead us to see the glory of God and to worship him more deeply and purely, then we can recognize that there's uh, something rotten in the state of Denmark about it. 
And so that's, I just, I just think con a continued growth in biblical knowledge and in those things that have been demonstrated through argument and through analysis and through exegesis and through controversy that have made their ways into the confessions of faith as a distillation of, of genuine, real Christian thinking and doctrine. To, to learn that, to let that be our, our, our cloak, let that be our uh, shield of faith, and, and we will we'll be well off in any kind of alien philosophy that comes. It's recently been talk about Southern Baptist women preaching in churches on the Lord's Day to the gathered congregation. How big of a deal is that? <laughs> Nobody's stepping in that one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, it's certainly a biblical issue, and I, I don't see that. Paul sets forth any kind of ambiguities when he is speaking about these issues in the most pivotal passage in 1 Timothy 2. When, right before he gets to talking about what the qualifications of an elder are, he gives a prohibition and he states a reason for that prohibition that is not uh, based upon any kind of uh, cultural sort of fear that he has. Uh, it's, he goes right back to creation. He goes right back to the fall. I think he's dealing with maleness and femaleness. He's dealing with the idea that the woman was suited to be, was fitted to be a helper for the man. I think that there is these, this reality of masculinity and, and femininity that, that together forms the, the image of God, but uh, that Paul's understanding of this is that the female was the helper, not the leader. He's extending that then into the whole issue of redemption and gospel ministry. And the, the plain teaching, it seems to me, of the text is that uh, when a person takes the position of being the pastor, instructor of the congregation, that is for the man. And I read a blog recently that uh, talked about how silly this argument was because there were no pulpits in the early Christian churches. And someone said something about a woman shouldn't stand behind the pulpit. And so his first argument was, well, there weren't pulpits in the early Christian churches. Well, I mean, that's just a literary analogy. Anyone can figure out that's just a symbol. When you're talking about standing behind the pulpit, you're talking about taking the position of the teacher of the congregation in matters that are designated for the pastor. And so if you place someone who is prohibited from being the pastor teacher in the position of being the pastor teacher, it is a violation of scripture. I just think, I don't think it's subtle. I don't think there's anything unclear about it. It just, it shouldn't be done. You can say, well, this person is doing that because the pastor has allowed her to do it. Well, the pastor made a mistake. Uh, he, he can't get up there and I mean, some say, well, if she says certain things, then you'd have a, a conference later and say, well, and when she said this, that was wrong and so forth. Why do you, oh, well, never mind. I, I won't so, go so, into all of that. So, Tom. That, that's, my, that's my view. That's my answer on that. So do you think <laughs> then that uh, it, would it be proper or improper to say that a woman in a church can do anything that an unordained man could do? Do you have an answer in mind? Well, yeah, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to agree with. Now, this is an argument that's been, that's been used. Yeah. I, I, my, my initial reaction to that is no, 
Um, I think what you I, just said would indicate that it yeah, has to be that way. Right. Uh, women have a specific instruction as to what their teaching ministry can be. And Titus teaches that it is a very uh, profitable and edifying teaching ministry for experienced women who know the word, who have faith, who have life experience to be able to teach younger women. And included in that is to teach them to love and be submissive to their husbands. So the woman who has the teaching position also has the role of helping them understand the relationship between maleness and femaleness in the church, which would be for her an explanation as to why it is not fitting for a woman to be in an authoritative position in teaching over men. So, uh, so I think that is a, a biblically verified extension of the idea that only the man can be the pastor in that position in the church because there is a specific way in which women are are told they can teach. Now, we get into all these things about, I mean, I've got two sisters, and both of them are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, they are clear in their convictions, and if it was just a matter of uh, who can think the best and who has read the most and who can express themselves in sort of the most uh, creative and attractive way, they should be the preachers and I shouldn't. But that's just not what God has said. It's not a matter of trying to to create any kind of sense of inferiority in, in femininity. That's, that's not the point. It has to do with an established order of, of creation and exactly what happened when the one that was to be a help to Adam began to lead him into something that he really knew was not right. But how could God give me someone fit to be my, my helper and this not be good advice that she's giving me? So I think Paul is reflecting on that, that when we get the order wrong, then we're going to more easily be, be led into, uh, into error. And so, yeah, I think that there are, there are other teaching ministries in the church that men might do that are not necessarily done by the pastor, but still should not be done by a woman. Not because she's not smart and not spiritual, but just because that's what God has said for good reasons. Nobody in this room probably is as smart as you, Tom. Except because his sisters aren't Except here. maybe Fred. <laughs> Except maybe Fred and your sisters. So let me just add some really small thing, because I have daughters, and we've talked on occasion. They're good girls. They would never be a preacher. But, but we've talked. When Jeroboam cast out the Levites from the northern kingdom because they were a political threat because if they pointed the people to the true worship at the central sanctuary in Jerusalem, he knew that their hearts would incline back to the Davidic king, whether it was this Davidic king or some future Davidic king. And so he set up a golden calf at Dan and at Bethel. And also high places around the country where they could sacrifice on every high hill and under every green tree. Not merely to Baal, but also to his perverse form of Yahweh. I guess he was, you know, some kind of liberal denomination. And so, so, uh, so when Jeroboam did this and he cast out the Levites, he created a mixed multitude priesthood. Any Ephraimite, any uh, Naphtalite, any, anybody who wanted to be a priest. And God condemns this over and over and over. Now, are we to assume that a man of Ephraim 
might not have been as knowledgeable as a man of Levi? Are we to assume that a man of Gad might not be better educated or maybe have better gifts in a pulpit? It's not the point. God gave it only to the Levites. I don't have to understand why God chose men to be elders and deacons. I am grateful that he lets women be pretty much anything else. That's good. I have daughters. I want them to be able to do what they want to do. But he said, this is for men. I don't have to perfectly understand it. I have to perfectly obey it. May I add a word? I talked about my sisters, and I don't want to embarrass my wife about this, but a, a spirit, a, a, a servant spirit, is something that is very admirable uh, in a pastor. My wife has a, about 2,000% more servant spirit than I, I do. She would never want to be a pastor, though. But the servant spirit that she has qualifies her for lots of things in the church that people appreciate very much and that are very valuable. And she outstrips me and a lot of men, I know, in that. Uh, and so I want to cultivate that servant spirit. I want to try to live up to everything the Bible says uh, I should be. But then there are certain uh, gifts of hospitality and gifts of, uh, of discernment that other people have that would be good for ministers to have, but they may not have as much of it as some other people do. And so that, that kind of uh, servant spirit that I've seen operative in her is something that I envy and, and, and that resist at the same time. And yet uh, she's not called to be a pastor. God well, called me to that. The, the question was, how important is this, right? And so, I mean, that's really the issue here. We're, we're not talking, if, if we were saying, is it more important to believe in the deity of Christ or to forbid women preaching? You know, I think we'd all say the deity of Christ. I mean, that's certainly in terms of trying to think what's most important. But when we're talking about these issues that are upon us today where women are saying, yes, I should be able to preach because I'm gifted and God's put a deep burning in my bones or whatever it is to go preach, it's as if we are repressing them, oppressing them, keeping them from what is best for them in their own understanding. And that's the way it comes across. When we need to be careful not to, to say those things or to, to imply them in any way, but to say just what these two brothers have said, God has spoken in his word. And I really think the most fundamental verse in this whole controversy of social justice is Genesis 1.1. It's God's world, yes. and he's the one who's ordained how it is to operate, how we're to live. So, yeah, I don't. I mean, we can easily fall down a rabbit hole if we start trying to think, well, is this more important than that? The question is, has God spoken? Is it clear? And are we going to be submissive to what he has clearly revealed, or are we going to be motivated by things other than Scripture? And I think that's what's going on. I think we are just listening to the culture and we are being blown by cultural winds into this egalitarian way of thinking today that has just filtered itself into the whole issue of women pastors and women preaching. How are Christians to respond when one institution, government, fails to act justly and in accordance with the church's understanding of truth, justice, the gospel, and the very nature of God? How does one God-ordained institution the church, respond to unethical actions of another. Example of clear cases of, for an example, uh, clear cases of police brutality uh, that occur with racial overtones. 
Is it enough to simply teach our children, or is more warranted? And if more, what's that look like? Tom Hicks, this was uh, kind of oriented toward you, given your talk uh, earlier today. So, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, institutions uh, have a division of responsibility. It's very important to understand that everyone is obligated to God. Uh, everyone made in his image is obligated to him. But the institutions that God has ordained have different responsibilities and roles. The family's role is not identical to the church, and the church's role is not identical to the government. And so if the government is starting to do things that are uh, ungodly, uh, evil in some sense, the church's responsibility as an institution is to preach the gospel for the conversion of souls, the advancement of the kingdom, and the establishment of new churches. Now, individual Christians may have a calling um, not to be pastors, which would be to get to move into the institution of the church, uh, but or into the leadership of the institution of the church, but to be uh, politicians. And so there's one way that the church can influence uh, government is by uh, calling, um, of course, by voting. Um, but the church's role as an institution is to preach the gospel and uh, that we would live holy lives. And, and certainly as Christians, uh, in a democracy, uh, the critical way to influence things is not to send more power up to the top that doesn't belong there uh, in terms of the government, but to train our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, to teach them uh, the, the word of God and to live faithful Christian lives and, and to see society formed according to uh, God's ethical standards. So, Amen and amen. And look, as the most political guy here, I mean, by far, <laughs> duh, get involved. If there's police brutality, do something about it. And there is. I mean, look, is anyone not a sinner? Raise your hand if you're not a sinner, because if you are, you occasionally do bad stuff. Okay, the genius of the American system is that it balances power among many different interests. So you have two houses of Congress that originally were designed to represent the people, but also sort of the Senate was a bad name for it. They should have called it the House of Ambassadors because until the 17th Amendment, it was entirely composed of people elected by the state legislatures to represent the states. So you had you had a mechanism whereby uh, the House could introduce uh, new spending bills and, and the taxes to go with them. And then it gets over here to the Senate, and because you didn't have a 16th Amendment, oh, wait, the local state legislatures have to raise that money, which means they have to raise their taxes, which means you go collar your state rep down at the coffee shop and tell him what for, and he doesn't want to do that, so the Senate kills it because they like being a senator, and they don't want the state legislature to bring them home. And then it's got to go to a president who represents everybody. And then you've got these judges. And then you've got this. And then you've got that. The whole thing was designed. And when we talk about America being a Christian nation more than anything else, this is what we mean and what we meant. It was all designed on the doctrine of total depravity. Really. Because even the unbelievers among the founders understood that man was corrupt. And they said things you've heard all your life, like if men were angels, no government would be necessary. All of what we're talking about today flips that on its head. Oh, we're going to solve injustice by accumulating more power in the hands of Pharaoh. 
Really? Because, boy, that worked out so well before. Every other place it's ever been tried. Oh, it'll be different this time. Really? How many times have we heard that about socialism? It'll be different this time. Why? Did man suddenly become pure? No. The whole system is designed better than any other place in the world. Thank God we get to live here. Any other place in the world. It is designed for all of the different interests in the country to balance each other out, which makes it frustrating because it takes a long time to get anything done, and we have to, oh wait, God forbid, we have to persuade our fellow countrymen. So it's tough, and you have to do work. That's the price of citizenship. But you get to make a difference. So if there's police brutality, go root it out. By the way, if there's abortion, because we've been murdering tens of millions of babies since 1973, and, and it has taken my entire lifetime to get to the point where we have a chance to maybe end it. And even if we do, it'll probably just be a state-by-state -state battle, and we'll spend the rest of my lifetime fighting that, probably just like Wilberforce spent half his life abolishing the slave trade and the second half of his life abolishing slavery. It won't be over quickly. That's, that's okay because we want to rule by persuasion, not by fiat, not by dictatorship, and end up with a Jeroboam. So be involved. That's the answer. Teach your children godly principles and go involve them. Be the citizens that God let you be. Should we surrender our American privilege? Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay. I'm going to be quick, but I'm going to say it, and you know where what's coming. So, so I want to ask these guys who want to talk about how, oh, well, we, well, we can never vote for the lesser of two evils. One... Who else would you vote for? They're all depraved. The only person you can ever vote for is the better of two choices. Or the best of three. It's the only thing you can do. And I ask these guys, and they don't have a good answer. They'll never have a good answer. Are you saying that you would have every Christian in Japan self-disenfranchise? Because by the standards articulated by some of our friends in 2016, no Christian could ever vote in any election in Japan. No Christian could ever vote in any election in India. I'd go you one further. No Christian could ever vote in any election in France. I think it would be questionable in Britain. No, you're always voting to do the least harm and minimize the most evil. And sometimes that's kind of a nasty choice. But I will take that choice because it is better than the alternative, which is Christ's enemies ruling over us, and we meekly go into the slaughter. No, I will not give up any American privilege. I am thrilled that God blessed us to be in this place at this time, and I want to make it better. I think also there is a... There is a duty that a minister of the gospel has when he sees blatant injustice and he sees even the laws of the land being violated uh, and that's tolerated because there is uh, so much uh, cultural approval of those particular uh, violations. Uh, ministers of the gospel need to be courageous. They need to be willing to suffer at the hands of their own people uh, to speak what is obviously the truth, what is obviously an issue of real justice. In a society, I'm, uh, when I speak this afternoon, I'm going to talk a little bit about growing up in Mississippi, 1946 to 1968, uh, 
when we moved to Texas. But, but I mean, that this was a this was a really really bad bad time, and I didn't I didn't realize it. But I can remember two instances in which ministers of the gospel said things just very slightly, even that helped shift my thinking about some things. Uh, when the schools had not been integrated as a result of Brown versus uh, the Board of Education, and this was being resisted all across the state. Uh, and then there was a time when there were all these, these demonstrations, and there was brutality, and there was just horrific things going on. My pastor said something like this. He says, he said, we have our own reasons for not uh, desiring for our schools to be integrated, but we have to look carefully into our souls about the brutality that is resulting from people uh, seeking rights that are guaranteed by law. Now, the first thing I wondered was, okay, well, what are the reasons that we approve integration, uh, that we don't approve integration? But then I thought, well, that was really a courageous thing for him to say the second part of that. And it made, a, it made a difference in the way I began to think about things simply because he was willing to say in this congregation there in Brandon, Mississippi, that uh, we, we need to, to check ourselves on this propensity to violence we have toward people who are simply seeking rights that are theirs by law. That helped. There was a Presbyterian minister in town, a young guy, who took a more a stronger stance in his Presbyterian church. Now, this guy was an evangelical. He was a Westminster Confession of Faith guy. He had all of us young kids into his house every Tuesday night for a Bible study. It was wonderful. It was one of those things where I began to uh, really understand a lot of things about the, uh, the Bible and the gospel that, that bore fruit later in my life. But, but he took a stronger stance, and he was roundly criticized in his church about this, and eventually, they, they got the presbytery to, to uh, remove him. But I heard about it, and I talked to one of my friends who was a Presbyterian about the stance he had taken. And again, when I heard the arguments he made, it made an impression on me. Uh, I'm sorry that there weren't those who took stronger stances. You can, you can do that without forsaking the gospel when you see that there are real issues of injustice existentially present uh, and, and we should be willing to speak to that. Amen. So, um, so, it, so it, it has to do with all of these things that, that these men have said. There's, there's, a, there's a, a much broader and more pervasive way to seek to deal with things when we recognize these are, these are real problems. And ministers of the gospel should have the, the courage of the, the conviction, should cast themselves as on, up on the providence of God if they realize that they're going to offend people when they simply speak the truth about what is right. Uh, and, I, and I do think that that's, that's something that we need to be very clear about. Okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask some rapid-fire questions just to try to cover a little territory here. I lightning you, round. Did you keep, keep them? Yeah, lightning round. <clears throat> and then I'm going to end it with a question, hopefully give that, that one a little bit more time. That's my strategy. Okay, so this one's to you, Tom Askell. Tom, in 2008, you wrote an article on corporate repentance over inflated and untruthful church membership. How do you articulate your principles of corporate repentance from those who are starting to call their churches and the SBC to corporately repent over racism and slavery? Yeah, well, I think corporate repentance is a thing. Daniel chapter 9 is uh, a good example to us. There's no sin of Daniel recorded in the Bible. It doesn't mean he didn't sin, but we don't have a record of this sin in the Bible. And yet you read Daniel 9, that prayer, 
He says, we have sinned. We have not listened to the prophets. And so he's identifying himself with the people of God of that generation and generations before. I think that's completely legitimate. And so in, in our church, uh, we have done this before. And in our association of churches, the SBC, we've done this as well, not just in that regenerate church membership uh, resolution, but in a 1995 resolution when we acknowledged slavery and the Southern Baptist Convention's participation in slavery, saying that, that that was wrong the way it was done and some of the arguments made were wrong and sinful the way people were treated. Uh, and repented of that, acknowledged this is wrong. I think that's always appropriate for us to say, yes, everything that is sinful, wherever it has happened, is wrong. Any connection I have had with that is wrong. What I see to be considerably different between what I was arguing for in 2008, what's going on today, is there seems to be no end in sight to continual confession and repentance, and not only that, but penance that is being demanded. Uh, that is completely cut off from what we've heard already today about the articulation of the gospel. So those are distinctions that I make. Uh, in a church not addressing social issues, social justice issues, uh, how do we bring it up for discussion without being divisive? And uh, closely related question, how would you handle these issues in the uh, context of a rural church, uh, unaware of the fancy terms like critical theory, intersectionality, et cetera? I don't have any experience at not being divisive, so I wouldn't know how to ask. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. So if you're just a if you're a member in the church and you know you're aware of these issues and concerned about them, I would encourage you to go and speak to your pastor, speak to your elders, and uh, get their mind on it. Make your make your understanding of these problems clear to them, and ask them what does the Scripture teach about this. And ask them, um, you know, how, how, how as a church should we be addressing these things prophetically? And so see what the pastor says and start there. That's a and I would say as pastors as well, don't assume your people don't understand anything about this or aren't hearing about it. I mean, we are in a connected world today. So it really doesn't matter where you live. And if they're just watching the news at night on the television, they're still going to see identity politics everywhere. And so help them think biblically about what's going on in the world. And you do that through expositional preaching, through doctrinal understanding, teaching your folks. And you can do that without mentioning the word critical theory, intersectionality. And if they're getting that systematic understanding of the word of God into their thinking, what happens is a grid begins to be built in their minds. And that grid will not allow certain stuff through. And they may not be able to figure out why, but you'll hear their questions. Man, you know, this doesn't sound right. Uh, what this? I'm, I'm having questions about that, and the reason is because they've got a biblical grid that you've helped build in their thinking, and then you can articulate more detail as would be helpful to for them to understand some of the uh, deeper aspects of where this is coming from. How would you approach a non-denominational Bible institute with faculty and staff that embrace social justice? I wouldn't. <laughs> You wouldn't approach them. I mean, I don't know what the is question. Approach them to what? How would you, what, what do you what do you do about it? What do you? Bye, Felicia. <laughs> well, if someone if if one of them has written a book or written a, a, a an article somewhere, and it is uh, public and you can engage it from a a, a theological standpoint or scholarly standpoint, you can take issue with it. 
uh, if, if they're putting stuff out there so that people actually know this is what this non-denominational institution is, is believing and you want to engage them simply from a Christian or an evangelical standpoint, then I think that's a, that's a, a good way. Make it a matter of, of public record that here's what they're believing. This, this is what I think the implications of it uh, are. This is what I think is a more biblical stance. I would like to see this person respond. To that. But if you've got an institution that's fully on board on record, I mean, it does become a matter of stewardship and time. And younger guys may feel more inclined to do that. Like me. My, yeah, my, my age of life, you know, I've, I've just got a few miles left, so I'm probably not going to engage that. Yeah, it's a triage issue. I mean, the SBC not only can be but has been recovered. Harvard would be harder because of the way it's constituted and how its board is selected. Now, I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it might not happen by next Tuesday. So I'm going to focus on the things that are actually susceptible to our work, and I'm going to pray for the others. So I heard Brother Rod's encouraging, optimistic exhortation just earlier about denominational life. Regarding how we navigate these waters denominationally, someone says, I appreciate founders working for reformation within the Southern Baptist Convention, but how far is too far to stay in the SBC, particularly women in leadership of the convention? How far is too far? Well, where are they? I mean, that would be the thing. I mean, you could, okay, I was about to make a joke that you would not appreciate, but (laughs) but I'm going to be good. I don't want to get smacked later. Okay. None of our institutions are led by women. What if they were? Well, then show up to convention and vote for boards of trustees that will fire them. We don't have a female president of the convention. I'm not certain that it is biblically mandatory that we don't have a woman as president of the convention. That's not an elder in the strictest terms, but I think it's a terrible idea. Why? Because everybody's going to think it is. So you're advertising an alien theology. I think that's a terrible notion. It's also not a good idea for anybody who becomes president of the convention. What a terrible job. They have no power and they don't have a budget. So, I mean, who would do that? Uh, The benefit of that job, the only part of that job that matters, really, is the ability to appoint the committee on committees. And if if nothing else has sounded Baptist today, committee on committees is about as (laughs) Baptist as it gets. That committee names the Committee on Nominations. That committee names the Boards of Trustees. So the President is really, really important in a really indirect way, which is why the resurgence took over a decade, because it takes a whole string of Presidents who have a certain intentionality to appoint a whole slew of other people who then appoint a whole slew of other people and, you know, they don't take direction. So if you see a problem, you have a way to fix it, but it may take a little while. I don't see anything in the SBC that deserves abandonment at this point. I see mostly good, some trouble that we can fix if we'll pay attention and do our job. I'm on board. I'm on board, and I'll tell you when I'm not, but but I believe that we're actually in a lot healthier place than a lot of people realize. 
but we've got, you know, we might have stage one cancer. I mean, we're going to have to cut some stuff, but I think our, our survival prospects are above 70 or 80%. So I'm going to, I'm going to, so let's get some chemo and go. This is the, uh, (laughs) this is the final question that I knew was going to take a little longer, but I want to throw out two other questions that were in in this category. And then I want to pitch it to Tom Askell. Um, so there was another question. Can a church designate giving to the cooperative program so no funds go to the ERLC? If so, should they? And also, how do you address the near affirmative action approach some in the SBC have proposed as a necessary approach to future SBC leadership? So whether you answer those two, but there, there are a number of questions circulating around these waters denominationally. It's interesting. Rod says he thinks they're a lot healthier than some people think, might have stage one cancer. Um, what's your assessment Tom Askell, and then maybe Tom Nettles, and anybody else who wants to speak. Which question are we dealing with? Oh, I don't know. Uh, well, let me say this. Jump that, in wherever you want. That, yeah, I mean, you can desi- the church can designate its money the way it, ever it wants to, but when it comes down to whether or not you're going to hurt the ERLC and send the message to them, you're not going to do that because the executive committee is the one that takes the requests from all the different organizations, and according to the, what the budget of the cooperative program is, the ERLC is going to get its, its portion. It's not like say, oh, this church in Florida didn't designate money for us, so we're being cut back. That's just that's not the way it's going to work. Uh, and so it may h- help your conscience, but the way to change these things is what uh, Rod was talking about, and that is it's a much deeper way. We need to see that there, there are ways in which we can operate within the, in the system in order to create long-term uh, changes. Uh, I'm not advocating that necessarily, but I'm saying that was exactly the genius of the conservative resurgence. They understood how the convention worked, and they were willing to be patient. You can't do that, though, unless the issue is big enough to have a lot of people on board and be patient for a long time. It can't be because you didn't like the MLK conference or something like that, because everybody's going to be over that in two years. Uh, if they're if they're still good things the ERLC is doing, if they're talking about abortion, if they're they're talking about the sex trade and things like that, if they're saying good and Christian things about that, then then we're saying, well, we're glad we have a voice that that's saying those things. So so if there's something that becomes systemically wrong with it, that is always pressing the edges of what we believe is the truth, then there is a way to to get at it and and solve it on the long term. A basis, but it's got to be something that you can have enough people behind for a long time in order to do it. Yeah, I would look at the SBC and involvement in the SBC. Um, it's a parachurch organization in one sense because it's not the church; it's an association of churches, and I think it's good and re- valuable reasons to have associations of churches. But it's not the local church, and so we need to keep that in mind. And as a pastor, I always want to focus on those priorities. What goes on in the church I serve is far more important than what goes on in the associational uh, elements of our connections. But having said that, there, there are certain tripwires that, if crossed, would sound severe alarms to me. Uh, chief among them would be what's coming out of our seminaries. Yes. If our seminaries are producing problems for our churches, that's a big concern to me. Uh, and that had happened, obviously, in the earlier part or the middle part of the last century toward the end before the conservative resurgence, and it was documentable. So if there are documentable evidence of the seminaries producing problems for our churches, uh, and that doesn't seem to be uh, something that we can remedy 
Well, then I would say, why are we continuing to participate in that? Uh, the ERLC, that's another issue. It's not as major. I, you know, I might not appreciate a lot of what they do. They always have done, at least in the last decade or two decades, uh, good things along with things that might not be so good. If our confessional parameters change, that would be significant if they change for the worse, which in 2000, I think the, there was a major upgrade in our confession with one exception. And the one exception was whenever we gutted the article on the Lord's Day. And it was unfortunate. And I, I'm, I still grieve over that. I've been given explanations as to why that happened, and they're all pragmatic. And, you know, I, I get that. But it still was unfortunate. But if, if there was to be a confessional change in the SBC saying, well, we need to clarify our view of women preaching and say that uh, the function of preaching in, the churches, in churches is not limited to men, I'm gone yeah, on that. And so those types of things, a lot of things can lead up to that, though, and it's trying to discern the direction and trajectory. One of the things this whole social justice stuff has done to me is it has brought in a, a severe cloud over the trajectory of the denomination. Prior to this, I've been able to argue pretty convincingly, to myself at least, that our trajectory has been good. And now there's a massive question mark in my mind about that. What is the trajectory going to be? I don't think that's answered right now. I think it will be answered over the next couple of years. And so there'll be some greater clarity in what happens or doesn't happen in the next two years in my mind about these things. I want to thank you men for being on this panel. Thank you all for being here to listen. We are going to dismiss now for a break. We're going to take a 20-minute break, and we will gather back here at 4 o'clock sharp for our next session. God bless you.